Melbourne, Peter Credlin. Good evening, welcome to the show. Another week of lockdown. I don't know about you, but I am utterly sick of it. But I'll keep across the news here and overseas. Let's have a look at what's coming up on the show tonight. Australian industry leaders are urging the federal government to spend $19 billion on a new net zero fund. And given our close to trillion dollar debt levels post-COVID, is another round of taxpayer-funded green subsidies really what Australia needs? We'll take a closer look at the detail on the show tonight. South Australian Senator Rex Patrick says the French submarine deal should have been abandoned months ago. They might have saved us billions of dollars in compensation. He's the only bloke in the parliament, too, who's crewed a nuclear submarine. We'll get his views on all of that a little bit later in the program. Plus, division in the National Party. It's actually about as serious as I've ever seen it. I'll tell you who's in whose camp and where it's all headed tonight. And freedom on its way. The New South Wales government has unveiled the restriction settings that residents and businesses will be living under once the 80% double jab rate is reached. And I can say quite confidently that we envisage 11th of October will be the day that we'll be able to adhere to that roadmap. And I just say to everybody across the state, thank you so much for your patience. Um, it is just this week and next week that we have to hang in there for. We're nearly, nearly there. And let's not give up at the last minute. But first, as the weekend's AFL Grand Final made clear, there's two Australias right now. One where people can live more or less normally and attend the spectacle that was Saturday night's game in great numbers and head out to celebrate afterwards, or without a mask, I might add. And another where people are largely still locked up in their homes. It was horrible to walk over to the MCG yesterday, as I did, and try and soak up some of Melbourne's historic win, only to find police scouring the area, lest Melbourne supporters congregate to celebrate something they've waited for since 1957. The sooner we are restored as one free country, the better. But unless the Prime Minister gets involved, it's not going to happen anytime soon because there's only one Premier really interested in opening up and that's New South Wales' Gladys Berejiklian. Today, she gave us more detail on her state's reopening plan. Because vaccination rates have sped up, she says that it's likely that from Monday the 11th of October, double jab people in New South Wales will be able to have five visitors in their homes, eat and drink in pubs, clubs, restaurants and cafes, and finally, after more than three months, get their hair done, go to a gym. Before the end of October, when vaccinations reach fully 80% double jab, there'll be 10 people allowed in your home. Up to 500 can attend seated and ticketed events, and there'll be hardly any restrictions on weddings and funerals. By that time in Melbourne, we'll be lucky to get another hour of exercise per day, maybe that extra five kilometres that we've been promised, take it up to 15 k's. Unless there's a real change of heart from the Premier, We'll all still be living under a ridiculous curfew just when daylight savings starts to come in. It's, it's, it's madness. Today in Sydney, the New South Wales Premier spent much of her press conference congratulating people for following the rules and telling them that they only have to wait a couple more weeks, as you saw, before life becomes more normal, while also cautioning people against seeing anything as Freedom Day. And she obviously expects people to be grateful but whether they really will be grateful for getting some freedoms back or remain deeply resentful at ever having them taken away in the first place, well, that remains to be seen. 
Berejiklian has already rescinded one promised freedom, the freedom of the double jab to travel anywhere inside New South Wales at 70%. That's now not happening until vaccination rates reach 80%. Supposedly, quote, on unupdated health advice. It's not health advice that's been released, of course. And she's also introduced a new benchmark, never contemplated before in the National Cabinet's roadmap of 90% vaccination thresholds. Now, so far, no country in the world has got to 90% fully adult vaccinated. Yet it seems that's where New South Wales gets to, or when they get there, the Premier says, on the 1st of December, that's when the unjabbed will lose their status as second-class citizens and they'll be allowed to go to the pubs, restaurants, shops, etc. presuming, of course, that owners will have them. Still a lot that's not clear, isn't it? For instance, in New South Wales, 80% documentation released today said that both employers must wait to allow employers to work from home, if reasonably practicable, but also that working from home will be at the employer's discretion. Well, they can't be both right. You either can work from home or you can't. Also, it's still not clear whether venues will be liable for serving the unvaccinated or whether venues and employers can make vaccinations compulsory on an ongoing basis. And what's the status of all those nurses, teachers, paramedics and police who are not yet vaccinated and who presumably the state government could also stand down? Then there's a question of state borders, which the National Cabinet said should all be open at 80% vaccination, but which both WA and Queensland now dispute. This is where Fresh Review's diplomatic triumphs overseas. The Prime Minister really has to show some leadership back here at home. For 18 months now, we haven't really been a country. We've got Australians locked up in some states, locked out of other states, supposedly all on health advice. Health advice, of course, we never get to see, but have to live under. And we haven't been much of a democracy either, operating for months under various states of emergency with draconian rules made not openly in the parliament, but via regulation, all done behind the closed doors of bureaucratic offices by chief health officers and police commissioners. No one we elect. And so much of this that's happening in this pandemic, there's been deafening silence from the federal government. Does anyone really think John Howard will have left all of this to the states to manage? Do you really think Tony Abbott would let Daniel Andrews get away with making Melbourne the most locked up city in the world? I think you already know the answer to that question. Then there's the sheer absurdity of health orders supposedly based on objective science, such as wearing masks outside. Different in every different state. For years, we've come to believe that the national government was running the country with the states mostly just delivering specific services, only to discover in this crisis that it's still every state for itself. How good is Australia used to be Scott Morrison's catch cry. I don't know that he'd be brave enough to ask that question at the moment, but let's hope he's wise enough to do something about it. Well, let's head to Canberra now. Tom Connell has the headlines. On June 26, Sydney went into a two-week lockdown. 
on October 11. That will finally end when the state achieves a 70% double dose vaccination rate. To everybody across the state, thank you so much for your patience. Um, it is just this week and next week that we have to hang in there for. It's a gradual reopening. Even at 70% vaccination rate, Sydney siders won't be able to travel regionally, despite the 787 daily cases being the lowest since August. The case numbers will go through the roof, but what will protect us is the fact that so many people have received at least the first dose of the vaccine. At 80% double dose, the real freedom starts. 10 visitors will be allowed in homes, 500 people able to attend ticketed events, non-essential retail will reopen and there will be increased capacity for retail, gyms and hairdressers. No caps will remain for weddings and funerals. Outdoor masks will be gone, but it's all only for the vaccinated. It's a disappointing day for those who are unvaccinated, but it's not too late. You've got the option. Go, go today, book, make your booking, go and get vaccinated. From December 1, the unvaccinated won't be treated any differently by the government, although venues will be able to refuse entry. Some capacity limits will be the only restrictions left, although New South Wales residents could still be locked out of much of the country until borders come down. My strong message is we're going to have to do it eventually. Why not for Christmas? It's a message that so far the Queensland Government is resisting. There is no National Cabinet agreement on when state borders should be a thing of the past. But Scott Morrison has made it clear he thinks it should be the 80% double dose mark and will be pushing for that at this Friday's meeting. The Queensland Premier pushing back on pressure from the tourism industry as well. well I'm quite sure that the tourism operators would not want Delta here. Uh, that would be catastrophic to the Queensland economy. I worry about a situation where uh, you'll be able to go overseas from New South Wales or Victoria before you can get up to see your, your close family in Queensland. And there's some free advice from another Labor Premier on those leaders still celebrating donut days. It's going to get into every state and territory in this country. The endless delivery of zero cases, that can't go on, for it just can't go on. It can't go on forever. The country for now divided by zero case states, including Queensland, WA and Tasmania, and those living with COVID, and at the moment in lockdown, including Victoria, New South Wales and the ACT, the latter announcing its path out. The lockdown will end at 11.59pm on Thursday the 14th of October. It's slightly earlier than Andrew Barr had indicated. He has been under sustained pressure to announce when the nation's highest vaccinated jurisdiction would get its freedom back. So we do want to see by the time the 29th of October rolls around and things open up more significantly, that we are not talking about 50,000 people without a first dose and 150,000 not fully vaccinated. The COVID response has put most other policy issues on the back burner, but the familiar issue of climate change is breaking through as the Prime Minister Scott Morrison inches towards a net zero emissions pledge by 2050. It's divided the nationals. The leader wants any new policy not to hurt the regions. Backbenchers Matt Canavan and George Christensen says that can't be done. While fellow backbencher Darren Chester says he's done with his party's direction, taking a break from party room meetings. The party is heading in a direction where I'm not comfortable with, and I don't think regional Australia largely is comfortable with it. While Nationals Resources Minister Keith Pitt was alarmed at the latest headlines suggesting coal needs to be phased out. What's next? Uh, if you want to rub out our coal sector, our offshore oil and gas, uh, do you then move to cattle? 
Rather than cattle, it might be more like herding cats if the PM is to get the junior coalition partner united. Tom Connell, Sky News, Canberra. Lots to get into tonight, isn't there? I told you, no shortage of issues and a lot of issues away from COVID. One of the ones that I mentioned at the top of the show, big companies now wanting a billion-dollar fund to meet net zero. This is subsidies for renewables. We've known about those for a long time. This is a new round of dollars. Woodside, Origin Energy, ANZ, they all want a new net zero authority created. They want $19 billion of your money put there to encourage the uptake of hydrogen power and a lot more. So here's reaction. I'm delighted to say he's back on air tonight from Sydney, broadcasting legend, my good friend, Alan Jones, who's got his show at 8 o'clock, but he kindly always jumps in here with me on a Monday night. Hey, uh, Alan Jones, $19 billion for another sort of uh, green agency. They want to call this one the Net Zero Authority. We'd have the, the Bob Brown Bank. We've got Arena, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. This is extraordinary. I mean, the bankers all get rich, but what's in it for ordinary Australians? Well, look, Peter, this is just... I heard your introduction there and then I heard Tom talk about all these other issues that are affecting Australia and here we are talking about this rubbish. Look, to put it simply, let me just say to our viewers, hydrogen doesn't produce any energy. That's the first thing. Hydrogen has to be manufactured. Now, these people have some notion that we'll actually use renewable energies, which we call green power, to produce the kind of hydrogen that will eventually be used where solar and coal and everything have been already available to generate the electricity needed in this country. The Keith Pitt is right, uh, Barnaby Joyce, Matt Canavan, the public are right. Coal, supposing we stop coal tomorrow, China, Indonesia and Japan want coal. So they would take coal from other countries. Now, the fact is that we have coal, which is cheaper coal. It's got a higher calorific value, our coal, whether it's thermal or metallurgical coal. The thermal coal produces the electricity. The metallurgical coal is used for iron and steel. And its higher calorific value means we can burn less coal for more energy. We start then eliminating Australia from the coal equation and you go to these other countries who continue to export their coal to China who couldn't care less about carbon dioxide emissions and so on and the carbon dioxide emissions if that's what we're about if they cause a problem then they'll go through the roof then there's the talk okay well what about I see this left-wing outfit the Grattan Institute talking about agriculture now agriculture produces 14 percent of all our greenhouse gas emissions and if as the lefties in the coalition want that we'll have to reduce those emissions from agriculture by 35 per cent. I just took some figures today. For example, we've got 26 million sheep. So what are we going to do? Th to work out 36 million, 26 million sheep. By 2030, we've got to reduce that by 35 per cent. Is someone kidding us? I mean, it is simply unrealistic. It doesn't, the figures don't stack up. And here we are, more money to try and avoid the reality. I mean, it's not long ago, is it, Peter, that Scott Morrison brought a lump of coal into the parliament. He waved the coal around. Where is he? Where's that bloke? Well, let's not forget the coalition, and, and you know, I was there at the time, got into government winning 25 seats off the Labor Party over two successive elections, opposing carbon taxes and Correct. green funds to the detriment... Correct of ordinary 
low-income working Australians. And here is that same coalition with very, yep. very dim yep. memories, uh, eight years on, getting back into this same fight. We know in New South Wales, for example, uh, New South Wales, New Zealand, sorry, New Zealand, everyone pats them on the back about their climate credentials, but Jacinda Ardern has exempted agriculture. Yes. There's talk, obviously, by Grattan, who wants a fixed carbon price on our agricultural emissions. If we're not going to export much, if we're going to stop exporting coal, if we're going to have qualms about digging things like iron ore out of the ground, if we want to look beyond nuclear, if we're serious, we'll be a nuclear, but we then want to start saying we're not going to be a country that has agriculture anymore. Honestly, Australia, how are we going to pay our way? Good on you. Well, now, Peter, you've made two points there. Uh, and firstly, take the first one that you made. Uh, you were phenomenal as the Chief of Staff to Abbott, who won 25 seats. Now, there are polls out today... There are polls out today about the Liberal coalition in awful trouble in every state in Australia. I said in March, there was a survey then, and I'll talk about this tomorrow night, a survey then where the coalition had lost over 2 million voters since Abbott won that landslide. Will someone ask us why? Peter Credlin just explained why. We've gone from the policy that won that election to something which more resembles the Labor Party. That's the first thing. The second point that needs to be made is, OK, get rid of coal. 70 billion export income. Who's going to pay for the National Disability Insurance Scheme? Who's going to pay for Medicare? Who's going to pay for welfare? And what happens in New South Wales? The royalties and taxes in New South Wales from coal are 1.8 billion a year. Now, the thing about the National Party, people are, oh, you know, they're off the beam. A canavan knows more of this, has forgotten more of this than anyone knows. They actually mm. present things simply sure. and they worry about jobs and revenue. None of them stack up to the kind of rubbish that's been announced today. We've got to pay for it all. I mean, my, my biggest grievance with all of this green politics is we, it's got to stack up and we've got to be able to pay for the lifestyle yes. that Australians have. We don't want our children to be worse off in terms of standard of living than we are. And we are at a very vulnerable time with China in and around the, the, the yeah. balance sheet where we have a huge welfare state. I mean, this yes. this will be a huge battle royal one at yes. Allen inside the coalition. Yeah, absolutely. And see, Peter, the other thing, I mean, they say, oh, there he goes again. Well, yeah, here I go again. What percentage, how many of those people in the parliament of 150 could tell us face-to-face -face what percentage of carbon dioxide, sorry, what percentage of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide? What percent of the whole of the world? The answer is 0.4%. Now, of that, how much does the human being, the world, produce? 3%. 3% of all of that. And then little old Australia down here is 1.3% of 3% of 0.0. I mean, this doesn't add up. What is the story? What This is an ideological argument that's taken over. It is a complete and utter hoax and it is designed to change the nature of the economy of the world. And it's an attack on the economic viability of this country. It is a national economic suicide note. And as you and I have said, OK, get rid of coal if you like, get rid of the $70 billion. Where's the... We've got debt, $2 billion, two, sorry, $1 trillion dollars, by 2024-25, according to UBS, how do we pay this debt? How do we pay our welfare? How do we pay for our education, our universities? This is a nonsense, and I don't understand hey. why a national leadership would hey. allow this to get any currency.
Hey, 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 we have missed you. You are back fighting fit. I'm tuning in at 8 o'clock tonight. Not going to miss it at all. <laughs> Alan Jones, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. thank you. Great to have you back. Great to be back. Oh, this is interesting. The Financial Times newspaper has brilliantly exposed the ludicrous buck passing going on inside these big multinational companies over net zero. And it couldn't be more re relevant to our debate here in Australia. The newspaper looked at two important pieces of data, emissions pledges made by big business and the average tenure of CEOs in those businesses. Now, what they found, it's striking. Cathay Pacific will likely churn through 10 chief executives before it reaches its net zero by 2050 target. The HSBC Bank, energy giant Shell, British Airways, well, they'll go through at least six chief executives before they reach their target. In other words, the smooth-talking CEO types that make all these glittery announcements on net zero, well, they won't just be long gone, Mother Time, targets are due to be realised, they'll likely play no part at all in the hard work actually getting there. Now, obviously, the same is true of our current crop of MPs and senators. They talk all about, don't they, net zero by 2050. That's 29 years away. Now, think about it this way. In the last 29 years, we've had 10 elections, eight prime ministers, eight treasurers and 14 environment ministers. Over that same time, we've witnessed a myriad of failed international climate agreements and meaningless action plans. I've sat there and had to read most of them. Kyoto 1, Kyoto 2, the Copenhagen Accord, the Paris Agreement, just to name a few. We're supposed to believe that a net zero by 2050 announcement from the Morrison government will seal the deal, says the PM, on climate policy for the next three decades. What, we're never going to talk about climate action or climate policies or have a fight with the Greens or the Labor left ever again? Don't fall for it. For me, the climate debate has always been about the money. Who gets rich from the subsidies? What special interest groups on the left galvanise the issue for political gains, not environmental ones? And how the poor and low-income Australians at the other end of the spectrum just get left paying the increased taxes and energy bills for what? For what? Right, staying with climate politics, some good news here for Anthony Albanese and Labor. Simon Holmes Accord, the cashed-up son of the late business tycoon Robert Holmes Accord, well, he's confirmed his political action fund, Climate 200, will spend at least $1.4 million supporting pro-renewable independence of the next election. He had an interview with the nine newspapers and Holmes Accord said Climate 200's mission is to elect MPs who support greater action on climate change, government transparency and gender equality. But have a look a little closer and you'll see that the organising principle of Climate 200 isn't advancing progressive causes like climate and gender. It's about knocking off Liberal MPs and installing a Labor government. Holmes Accord says so himself. Asked which seats Climate 200 will target, he said, it's not locked in. But right now you've got Dave Sharma in Wentworth, Trent Zimmerman in New South Wales, Jason Falinski in McKellar. In Victoria, we're looking at Greg Hunt, Tim Wilson and Josh Frydenberg. There it is, black and white, all Liberal-held seats, make no mistake. This election will go down to the wire, which could be a hung parliament. That makes it a gift to Albanese and the Greens, all those Greens that are calling their front benches shadow ministers. Good Lord. All right, coming up after the break, South Australian former submariner, now Senator Rex Patrick, on that French deal and the compensation. And he'll tell us what it's like to be inside a nuclear sub.
My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. Welcome back. You're watching Fredland. Well, he's literally just got off the Prime Minister's jet, landed back in Canberra and here to give us his analysis on a big last week of international diplomacy by the PM, but a big week coming up of climate politics here in Australia. I'm joined from Canberra by the national editor of the Australian newspaper, Dennis Shanahan. Well, welcome home, Dennis. I'll get to the PM's trip in just a moment, but I, I want to just get your assessment on all of these various state government roadmap plans. It's all falling apart other than the bright light that is New South Wales. Obviously, if, if the PM's going to win the next election, likely to be uh, early in the front half of next year, we've got to get back onto domestic issues. We're going to get the economy back and kicking. It's done quite well, but it's not being felt or realised, I think, in households while everyone's focused on COVID. How does the PM assert his authority here? Well, I think that the uh, Prime Minister faces a great challenge. Uh, in the uh, couple of the interviews he gave in the United States, uh, there were people who were very praiseworthy about Australia's overall response to COVID. Uh, and, of course, coming from the, the, the journalists in the US, uh, it is easy to see that Australia is performing much better on a global scale. But the big question is how they are going to uh, continue to perform uh, domestically, how the states are going to behave before the election. And, look, psychologically, people are over it. And I think that economically, the government is desperate to get the big economies reopened. Now, New South Wales appears to be on a path to reopening. And might I say, after being in New York and Washington uh, in the past few days with the Prime Minister, uh, it is quite remarkable to be in cities uh, where there are people just walking around, some with masks, some without masks. Uh, some places you need a COVID certificate to get in, a double vax pass, uh, others you don't. Uh, other places, they don't seem to be, you know, even practising social distancing. So there's a big mishmash there in the US, but the cities are open and operating pretty close to normal, uh, fewer people admittedly. And this is what the Prime Minister wants in Australia. One way he can do it is to encourage international travel. He's got to push up those vaccination rates, which is happening in New South Wales. It's happening in the ACT, very high vaccination rates. So if he can provide incentives uh, of overseas travel to increase vaccination and disincentives to say, well, you know, we are not going to continue uh, to pay uh, the COVID support uh, where we don't consider it to be a COVID hotspot. Uh, that's a, a carrot and stick approach. Uh, it's still in the hands of the premiers. And it was interesting to see uh, Gladys Berejiklian trying to lead the way today in opening up, saying, well, we get there and those who aren't vaccinated are the ones taking the risk. So she's pushing ahead. Daniel Andrews has said there are going to be deaths. So in New South Wales and Victoria, they are saying to people, get vaccinated because we are going to open up. And, uh, of course, I think that in the ACT, where we're still locked down, uh, I think that if New South Wales opens up, the pressure will be on ACT. Mm. And then you have the pressure 
on Western Australia, if there are people from New South Wales going to Bali or going to Fiji, which is now becoming quite a, uh, a possibility, there are going to be people in Perth who like to think about Bali as a weekend away, saying, why can't we go to Bali if people from New South Wales or Queensland can? And so I think there's internal pressure as well as, of course, the lead up to Christmas. And as Gladys Berejiklian has recognised, people will want to be together by Christmas. And so it's all psychological, but it's still in the hands of the premiers. Mm. Look, I think you're spot on. I think the politics of New South Wales opening up will change the politics in other jurisdictions. I guess the problem that Victoria's got, it is so far away. Caseloads dramatically lifting. It's got concerns about ICU beds. The lack of preparedness from the government is there. And the lack of, I guess, Victorians' ability to put up with much more is also there. So it's a very different kettle of fish. Queensland and WA put them in the same uh, camp. You've written about a whole range of issues now back on the domestic agenda today. Primarily, I guess, the biggest one's got to be this uh, landing point on net zero by 2050 climate policy. There is a ruction inside the National Party. I don't think I've seen it so bad. Uh, you've got Darren Chester, who's basically standing out of the National Party. I assume he's going to resolve his position by the time the Parliament's back in mid-October. But you've got Matt Canavan, very strong. Barnaby Joyce's leader now trying to negotiate uh, the, the way through. The, the PM always said, Dennis, that, that he wouldn't go net zero by 2050 unless he could demonstrate how he pay for it. That, that's what he's got to deliver if he's going to bring coalition supporters over the line, isn't it? Well, precisely, and that's why his approach. Uh, and it's interesting, at the Quad meeting, this first face-to-face -face Quad meeting of the four leaders in the White House, the communique came out and it said, net zero 2050, preferably. Uh, and uh, that was after the G7 meeting where they said, you know, we, we understand you don't want to finance coal, but it's got to be unabated coal. So everywhere where Japan, Australia, India have had some influence, there's always a little bit of wriggle room. But I think the Prime Minister is very keen to get uh, net zero uh, by 2050, a commitment by the uh, mm. climate change meeting in Glasgow. And the way he's doing this is trying to sell an economic prize, he describes it. So instead of talking about the environmental aspects and saying, well, you know, we'll join the rest of the world and we'll be lowering emissions and so on, he's actually selling an economic solution to try and provide continued jobs in the regions and in mining and to lock in participation with the rise of countries like Malaysia, Vietnam, the Philippines, Indonesia, so that we diversify our markets and become enmeshed in these growing markets in a way that we were never allowed to be enmeshed with the market in China. So it's a big picture uh, economic story, but it also uh, it meets what Joe Biden wants. And Joe Biden specifically uh, mentioned this during the bilat meeting uh, with Scott Morrison, where he said Scott Morrison's idea of assisting developing nations to cut their emissions was extremely important because Joe Biden's view is it's a global problem. It doesn't matter what you do within your borders if no one else is doing anything. And so this is Scott Morrison's appeal on the environmental and the economic side. It, it's another <laughs> attempt that, well, for what, the sixth leader to try and save his job and sell a climate change policy.
Well, it's one thing to get through the party room. It's another thing to get uh, people to buy it at the election. But we'll see what happens. Long way to go. Dennis Shanahan, great to see you back home. Thank you for your time. All right, as the Morrison government faces accusations of stabbing France in the back by abandoning the $90 billion future submarine contract, one senator says the deal should have been ditched months ago. South Australian Senator Rex Patrick, himself a former submariner, says the French contract should have been terminated following significant delays in the attack class design process. Rex Patrick joins me now from Adelaide. Senator, thank you for your time. I want to start, if I can, asking you about the French reaction. My sense is... The French are cloaking their anger about being left out of this alliance, the AUKUS agreement. Um, they're cloaking it in a, a loss of face, I guess, about the, the commercial reality here, all this uh, talk about broken contracts, etc. What are we likely to see in terms of compensation here? Well, look, the French are probably uh, rightfully disturbed that they didn't give uh, get given notice, but there's no question that the French has let Australia down in relation to this program. Uh, it uh, went from $50 billion to a $90 billion program. It was uh, delayed. The last two milestones were uh, uh, 10 and 8 months respectively late. Uh, the, we weren't meeting expectations in relation to Australian industry content. Uh, and it's not clear we were going to get a regionally superior submarine, which is what we contracted for. Uh, my view is that we should have been exiting this some time ago. And uh, one of the problems we've got is that uh, we're now exiting by way of terminate for convenience rather than terminate for default, which is where we should have been going. Uh, there will be a break payment now because of the way in which we've exited this. And, you know, we have to cover all the costs. So, for example, we do have people that are still in Cherbourg in France uh, uh, that are paid for and employed by Naval Group Australia. It's reasonable to expect that Naval Group will continue to pay those people until they're in a position to be able to come home. And, of course, the Commonwealth will have to compensate. But this is a $2.4 billion program uh, that, um, that has now been terminated. Uh, so it's a lot of money and we do need to look back and say what happened there because uh, whilst I think it was the right thing to do, uh, I, I question the way in which we went into this. Look, look, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it was a mistake from the get-go. I think that the, the changing relationship between what Australia thought they were buying and what progressively month by month was being delivered in terms of uh, uh, the contract negotiations, the amount of Australian content, jobs in Australia, all of that, but, but you and I know that the big, biggest gossips in Canberra are those in and around the defence uh, procurement area of all the lobbyists, etc. I mean, this has been going off the rail for months and months and months. Why didn't someone in Canberra call an end to it and deal with this earlier? Yeah, again, they should have been working towards a default uh, position. There's no question that, that there were delays uh, with the milestones. And that would have been a much smoother exit. In fact, uh, we could have done that while still negotiating in secret with the United States and the United Kingdom, uh, bearing in mind that what's been announced by the Prime Minister is not a new contract, simply uh, a study that will, uh, that will take place over the next 18 months, uh, an intergovernmental study looking at what they might need to do to get a nuclear-powered submarine. So it's not a, a definitive, definitive announcement we could have exited this much, much uh, more simply. Look, I'm a, a fan of the decision. I think it's bold. I'm really pleased to see that we're a country that could still make these big decisions. But 
you're the expert, not me. You're the only member of parliament that I'm aware of that's ever served on a nuclear boat. Do you have a preference between the, the Virginia class, the American boat, uh, or the British class, the astute? Is there one we should be preferencing over the other? Well, I don't know what the government's plans are. The Virginia-class boats are clearly very good boats, but I wonder why the, U the UK were introduced into uh, the arrangement as a trilateral arrangement. In, you know, if we were just to get the Virginias, we didn't need uh, the, the British. I suspect that the United States, uh, their Navy, have been sort of kicking and screaming, concerned that they aren't getting boats fast enough and won't want to relinquish a submarine for use by Australia. Uh, that uh, looks like, therefore, it might go to the British. There is another possibility, and that is that both the Virginia class and the Astute class have replacement programs running at this point in time. There might be a, a circumstance where we end up with a common uh, submarine between the United States, the UK, and, and indeed Australia. So we don't know where this mm. is going. Uh, all we know is it is a big, bold step. You know, people ask me, do, do I feel safe, or did I feel safe on a... On a, on a submarine, nuclear-powered submarine. The answer to that is, I certainly did, but I was also on a submarine that had been operated by the US, the US Navy uh, and, uh, and uh, backed by a, a nuclear industry with fantastic safety regimes, and that's the sort of thing we've got to strive to get to. Yeah, I just hope this will sound crazy because it doesn't normally happen this way in politics, but given your experience and your place in the Senate, I just hope someone in the, in the government reaches out to you, ex-Patrick, and gets you on some sort of working group as they navigate the next 18 months because uh, your expertise, and they're going to want your vote in the parliament if there's legislation required here, just seems to me to be a smart move. We'll see if that happens. Rex Patrick, thank I'd you I'd always be happy to help. Thank you. I'm sure you wouldn't. They'd be smart to ask you, wouldn't they? Smart to ask you. All right, we'll have a look at the news poll. There's been a big movement in news poll. Very interesting result in relation to some of the states that you would think the premiers would do worse than they're doing now after the break. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Well, there's not much in the way of good news for the Prime Minister and the latest quarterly analysis of news polls. So when they get all the news polls over a quarter and stand back and look at the big picture, uh, PM is struggling to convince premiers and chief ministers to stick to what they all agreed at National Cabinet bar Gladys Berejiklian. And over that time, despite the lockdowns in some of these states, the coalition's primary vote has actually gone backwards in battleground areas of New South Wales and Victoria to discuss this. I'm joined by my Monday night panel from Melbourne, former communication minister, labour power broker and all of that, Stephen Conroy, and also from Melbourne, executive director of the Menzies Research Centre, Nick Cater. I'll go to you first if I can, Nick. Coalition strategists, there'd be way to see this consistent and significant drop now in support from blue-collar workers and voters without a university degree here in the coalition's underlying vote because... They are the voters that got behind Morrison in 2019 and got him over the line. How do they get them back? 
Well, I think that, that, that you, you go back to basic politics 101, you start looking at, at, at you know, jobs, security of employment, growth in the economy, those sort of things that people respond to. Uh, I, I think there is a problem in that poll. I mean, the, as you say, it's a quarterly survey, so that some of that is historical, but there does seem to be a problem in various sectors. You can see still with younger voters, particularly uh, going for Labour and the Greens. But uh, I think some of the positives from that poll for, for the coalition is that they're, very, they're polling very strongly amongst retirees and in the over 55 groups. That's an important group for them. It's when they, when they start, support starts waning in that group, as it did in, uh, in the 2016 election, then they're, they're really in trouble. Stephen, I want to preface this by saying I think it's incredibly difficult to poll at the moment. That's certainly what pollsters are telling me. But what's your thoughts? Look, I think firstly, even if you take that worst case scenario, all that does is give Labor a wafer thin majority. They need to go, OK, this is a bad poll, but it's it's not a, an election landslide to Labor. Uh, I agree, I think, with a point Nick made, this is a backward looking. This is an analysis over three months of the past. I think the Prime Minister is potentially coming out of some of the, the, the vaccine rollout debacle will begin to recede as Australians begin to exercise their freedoms in different states uh, going forward. So I think it shows that Labor are competitive. For those who, who dismiss ALBO and dismiss Labor in going into the election, they need to be very careful about that. But the, uh, the poll shows that, you know, Labor are competitive, and that's something that surprises some people. I want to ask you, I've got you then, Stephen, about the extraordinary uh, comments we saw from the deputy leader of the UK Labor Party over the weekend. Her name is Angela Rayner. If you don't know about her now, you certainly will. She's refusing to apologise. She referred to the Conservative Party, Conservative MPs, as scum. She called them homophobic, racist, misogynistic. She also claimed that she held back a bit. I tell you what, this is a basket of deplorable sort of stuff. I mean, it's clearly, Stephen, she's pushing out some ground there against her leader, Keir Starmer, but these are extraordinary. It's made headlines right around the world. Well, look, it's just an unhelpful uh, comment from someone who's supposed to be in a responsible position. I mean, managing a British Labor Party conference in the current climate, when they've had the spanking of all spankings, they've had to dump Jeremy Corbyn. He's still an influence. She still aligns herself with him. She's clearly trying to undermine the current leader. But the bad news for her is that polls at the moment show that the most popular Labor politician isn't even in the House of Representatives. It's the mayor of Manchester. Uh, and the uh, it just shows how far the British Labor Party still has to go to be competitive against Boris mm. going into the next election. But just, you know, deliberately unhelpful trying to pump herself up at everybody else's expense. Well, Starmer doesn't help himself, though, does he, Nick? He, he argued, and those headlines literally have gone around the world, he said that it's not just women who have a cervix. Yeah, look, I mean, this is a minefield these days for anybody, but he's not, he's not managing that very well. I mean, Starmer's just produced a sort of 200-page What We Stand For document, and I'd suggest that when you've got to take 200 pages to say what you stand for, you're probably not really clear yourself. And that's certainly, I think, what the voters are thinking there. Um, I, I don't think the tactic of, of using, you know, vindictive words against your opponents, uh, as we saw at the weekend, is really the way to win. You've actually got to be seen to stand for something. And, and Labor in Britain at the moment is, has a real problem 
showing people what it does stand for if it knows itself. And you've picked up on this here in Australia, Nick. You've written a great piece today in the paper. Uh, the trust quotient between those who carry their work on a laptop and those who carry their, their tools and their work in the back of a ute. And that's, that's the real fight at the next election, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't believe in class wars, but if there is one, it's between those two groups, those that have done quite well out of this uh, lockdown that have, you know, been spending the morning ordering stuff on Amazon and then looking at the smoothie recipes and then walking the dog, fine for them, no loss of pay whatsoever. But the people we saw, at the, at, you know, out on display on the streets of Melbourne last week, I mean, there's some hotheads there, but in amongst them, you heard ordinary decent people saying, Look, what can I do? I've lost my job. So I, I think there is this stark divide now. And, and Andrews, I think, is inexplicably sided... Uh, with the wrong side here. You know, he's gone with not with Labor's traditional base. And I think the fracturing with the CFMEU is fascinating. I mean, it didn't begin with COVID. I think it had been going on in many areas before that. But this, this is a symptom of something much worse, I think, for Labor generally. We'll come back to that another time. There's no doubt that'll be a feature of the next few months. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. Nick Cater, Stephen Conray. All right, stay with me, please. I've got an incredibly powerful video about Melbourne's lockdown to bring you after the break. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winter? <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. I'm delighted to say Ben Logan joins me now. Ben, I got your video from Ronnie D'Astasio on Saturday night and I, I watched it before I even watched the grand final. I found it incredibly moving, really powerful. It's already had 40,000 views on YouTube. I think it struck a chord with people not just in Melbourne but right around the state and beyond. What prompted you to make the video? Oh, well, Peter, first... Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, it's it's sort of an odd feeling with this video because I mean you know you create things like that I suppose to for people to enjoy, but with this one, you know the the subject matter is pretty dark. Um, and really for me, it was a culmination of tw you know twenty months of experiencing what COVID's like, you know as a as a parent, um, as somebody that had worked in the hospitality space. Um, and then, you know, watching our kids, you know, me realising my children were at home, unable to go to school, and then, the, you know, the greater community with parents struggling with homeschooling. But then also, you know, business closures and then, you know, watching just the total, or not even seeing, the, you know, this lack of leadership in Victoria. It's just been, you know, disgraceful, really. And, I mean, it's been very, very hard to to, to deal with and to understand how, you know, an elected representative in the face of the greatest health crisis in modern history has gone absent in his leadership. Well, you're a bloke out of the hospitality sector. I mean, that, that, that was one of the best videos I've seen because it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of words. It was the power of the imagery and the beautiful music. But, but the, the points there about looking for hope and understanding really how hard Melbourne's been hit. It, it, a sense of camaraderie, I have to say. I was watching that thinking, as alone as I feel, you are referencing things that we all feel that actually had a sense that brought us together 
in how angry and disappointed and, and fearful we've all been. Where do we go from here? You, I said, you've been in one of the hardest hit sectors. What happens next? We need hope. I think that's one of the things about it. You know, the, the the video itself was sort of three had three reasons to it, or three you know th you know three premises really. One, the first one was to establish that Andrew's leadership throughout the COVID crisis had been an absolute disaster. The second one was to give examples of people that you may not have agreed with their philosophies, um, but were people and leaders throughout history that have that have made their mark on leadership. And the third one was to give people hope. And I think that's been the thing that. Um, has been sadly lacking. You know, we need hope. You know, the roadmap that came out, you know, it wasn't really a roadmap. It was just more, you know, disastrous information from Andrews and his minions of doom, really. Um, but the hospitality industry, I mean, Martin Pakula came out the other day and said, you know, or it was today, I think, that, you know, they were going to start... Um, you know, doing vaccine passports and, and working with businesses outside of Victoria. Why wouldn't you do that in the, C in the CBD? I mean, you know, not trying to put class into anything or anything like that. You're talking, if you talk about the three top restaurateurs in Victoria, or sorry, you know, in Victoria, if not Australia, you know, Guy Grossi, Ronnie Vistazio and Chris Lucas, all three of those men and their businesses have restaurants, you know, with in excess of 80, 85 people in each of their venues. Why wouldn't you try, and given the CBD is a ghost town at the moment, why wouldn't you start with those restaurants and let the people that actually know what they're doing about how all this actually works and give them an opportunity to trial these sorts of things instead of going to regional Victoria? And regional Victoria has been hit as hard as anybody else. But give the hardcore players an opportunity to see and to work with government, to actually be part of the process and give people hope, you know, bring people back into the CBD. I think it's about hope. Ben, as I said, I think it's a fantastic video. I know it's going everywhere. Can I get you back on the show? I want, I want to get you and others to help us drive some reform and, and bring back some soul to Melbourne CBD because I don't think if we don't push it, I don't think it's going to happen. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Ben. All right, that's it for tonight. Andrew Bolt's up next. Alan Jones at 8 o'clock. I'll be back here tomorrow night at 6. Hi, it's Gary Jubilant here. Do you want a real and raw look inside the world of crime? Well, then check out my podcast, I Catch Killers, where I interview people from all sides of the law. I draw my firearm and I went into fight mode. I wanted to find and confront this gunman. I'm, I'm not getting verbal, am I? <laughs> I shouldn't have trusted you. See, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to open my mind up to uh, defence I know, it's just begging to be said. Yeah. Fair call, fair call. We have amazing guests every week. Search for iCatch Killers wherever you get your podcasts.